0: Well, we've all been in a position where we have to make an important decision. We weigh the options in our heads and try to do what we think is best. Inherently, we end up making some decisions that are pretty selfish, right? We usually are looking for what brings us the most happiness or what we think will benefit us the most. And in most cases, there are, Might not be anything wrong with that approach, but there are times when making an important decision with our eye on looking out for ourselves, looking out for number one, and doing what we selfishly desire, that can create serious problems. I'm sure we've all been in a place where we were given an option, and even though we didn't want to come across as selfish, we jumped at the opportunity anyway. And we've also probably been on the other side of a decision like that. We selfishly hope that the person we're offering a decision to won't choose the option that we really want. And when we are looking at the options before us, we can easily forget some some things that are important for us to consider. When our category for decisions is our happiness or our personal prosperity, we can push to the side the pangs in our conscience or we can even forget about the need for considering what is best in the sight of God. And as we come to the book of Genesis again this morning, we, we find ourselves in a story where Abram's nephew Lot has an option to consider. And he chooses to leave the area that God has promised to his covenant people. Now this, decis- this decision Seems harmless, right? But, but as we will see in the life of Lot, this decision will cost him some very serious issues. In fact, two times in the book of Genesis, we're going to find that these decisions that Lot makes cause him to barely escape with his life. And so we find ourselves with, with Abram. And it's another interesting story, just, just like the story that we looked at last week. It isn't a story that usually makes the greatest hits list of what we remember from the book of Genesis. I'm guessing that even if you're very familiar with the book of Genesis, it might not even be a story that you really remember. But once again, this is an important story because it points us to the greater story. It points us to the story about this seed of the woman who is going to come one day and crush the head of the serpent. Ultimately, this story points us to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as you think about stories in the Bible, you might might often find yourself asking, why these stories? You may have even been asking yourself that today as I was fumbling across a bunch of names of kings that I can't pronounce, and I even practiced. But you might be asking yourself, why this story? why is this part of the life of this or that Bible character being told? You know, when you meet someone new and they ask you to tell them about yourself, you don't give them every last detail, right? You don't start out with, well, I was born on a Thursday and I'm pretty sure my parents took me to church on Sunday and that means I came home from the hospital on Saturday. You don't don't bore people with the mundane details of life, right? When someone asks you, about your week, you don't tell them about the monotonous hours that you spent typing at a keyboard, or the time maybe you spent behind your windshield enjoying the prairie view. Instead, you tell people about the big project that you completed at work or the big sale that you made, or you tell them about that moment that you, you barely missed being in an accident while you were driving. Those are the stories that make the cut. And the same holds true for the stories in our Bibles. The normal and banal moments of life don't make it into Holy Scripture. And so we need to remember that these incidents in the lives of the saints who have gone before us have a significance. They're pointing us to something greater. This isn't a boring story. They're here to show us the greater story of salvation in Jesus. And so we arrive in this interesting story in the lives of Abram and Lot, and we're going to break the story up into three points that will hopefully be helpful in us interpreting the passage and helping us to apply it to our daily lives. The first thing that we want to see is we see that Lot succumbs to the seduction of the world. He has come to the land that was promised to Abram, but his eyes looked away from the land of promise that God had given them. They were where God had led them to. They were where they had worshipped God. But his eyes were looking someplace else, and that seduction, that seduction of the world, was strong for Lot. Secondly, we see that despite the hopes for prosperity and renown, the world oppresses Lot. The world that was so enticing that it overpowers him Well, he eventually becomes overpowered by the world. He's in trouble. Lot had been blessed by his decision to go along with his uncle Abram. But now all of that is at risk when the powerful nations in that area all go to war. Lot finds himself in trouble, and he's not going to be able to save himself. So lastly what we see as the story concludes is that Abram comes and he provides deliverance for Lot. And what does he do? He brings Lot back to the land of promise. The situation is dire for Lot, but through extraordinary circumstances, he is rescued. And as I said, this is another interesting story. And we looked at quite a few verses that we're going to be looking at today. So we won't be going through everything verse by verse like we normally do. So don't worry, we won't be here until, well, next week if we did that. Instead, we're going to look at this in big chunks. We're going to look at what the bigger picture is as we look at these three themes. So as we come to our first point today, we're going to see how Lot gives in to the seduction of the world as we are in chapter 13. As, as we come to this story, it's important that we make sure our interpretation of it is framed with what we've learned so far as we've been in Genesis. We've learned a lot, right? Remember, there is a constant war going on. There is a struggle that is happening in Genesis. It is a war between the seed of the woman that will eventually lead us to Christ and the children of the serpent. Remember that story. We have to remember that war. That war began in the garden when humanity fell into sin. And that's when God promised that from Eve would come this, this seed who would crush the serpent's head. Well, from there, we saw how the drama unfolded. At so many points in the story, it seems as though the serpent is the one who's going to win. The chips are down against the the seed of the woman and, and his promised people. It looks like the serpent is going to win. Just a few examples to refresh our memory. The righteous one, Abel, he's killed. And so the Messiah can't come from him, And Cain is a murderer who's unworthy. How will the promise survive? Well, God provides Seth. And the promise line goes through him. Now there's a godly line that we're following from his children. And then when the world fell into evil violence, and God said he'd had enough, and he was going to send a flood to destroy the unrighteousness in the world, what did God do? He set apart a man by the name of of Noah, And what did we learn about Noah? That he's not just some random dude who's righteous. He's in the line. He's one of the children of the promise. So God keeps his promise. God, even when things seem dire, he keeps his promises. He rescues his people. Now I'm reminding us of this because as we come to the different people and nations in this story, all those names we we have trouble pronouncing, We need to remember that while those names seem random to us, they they would have been considered people outside the covenant of God. They would have been seen as enemies of God to the people who were reading this and hearing it for the first time. Remember, the Canaanites were cursed by Noah after that little incident where Noah had too much wine and he disrobed. Remember that story? Canaan was cursed, and so the people in this area are descended from the Canaanites, and they are outside the covenant. And so as we approach the story, we need to see the struggle that's happening here. This is a struggle between the promised children of God and the agents of the serpent. They're trying to undo the work of God. And if we understand that, it helps us to see what's going on in this passage, And so as we begin to see this idea playing out, we we see that Lot is struggling with the seduction of the world. We see that Abram and, and Lot are leaving Egypt, and they have profited greatly from their little excursion. Remember, they went to try and avoid the famine. Things didn't go so well, but they came out pretty good. They got all kinds of possessions. They're being increased in their prosperity. And because he's longed for the ride, Lot has reaped the benefits. And so we read that Abram is very rich, not only in livestock, but in silver and gold too. And and they go back to Bethel, where Abram has made an altar to the Lord. We see that when they they return, Abram calls upon the name of the Lord once again. The idea is that he he has disobeyed God by leaving, but now he comes back, and he's back to a place of worship, and he's He's submitting himself to the Lord once again. He's returned to that place of worship after his period of sin and unbelief. But as we see, everything after they get back to the land isn't sunshine and lollipops. Things aren't going so great between Abram and Lot's herdsmen. They both acquired so much that they couldn't stay in the same area anymore. There, there just weren't enough resources. And so to keep peace between the herdsmen, Abram calms things down by making a suggestion. There's there's plenty of land out there, guys. We're family. Let's get along and let's sort this out. And Abram isn't pushy at all. He agrees to take whatever Lot doesn't want. Well, Lot can choose any direction, but his eyes look to the east, right? They look east. And things look pretty lucrative over there. But what else is going on over there. It's in the Jordan Valley. It's on the edge of the Promised Land. It's outside the Promised Land. And again, we see someone moving away from where God has promised to deliver them. We see them moving away from the altar of God, moving away from worship, moving to the east. But there's a deeper issue. Remember, when I brought up that the players in this story were more than just random names, those names are people who are outside of the covenant. It's those who are agents of the serpent that dwell in the east. Some of the nations we we see here we aren't familiar with, but others, some of those names in there we're very familiar with. And the people hearing this story for the first time were clearly familiar with those names too. Because notice what it says when it references Sodom and Gomorrah. It was before it was destroyed. Now we haven't heard that story yet. We're going to get there in a few weeks. But clearly, the sinfulness of Sodom and Gomorrah and the destruction of those cities is so well known that the original audience of this is being reminded of it. They know the story. So what are we feeling here? What are we meant to feel as we read this story The idea is that Lot is more concerned with his personal prosperity than he is with the purposes of God. He's going east and away from where where Abram had made that altar, where they're worshiping God. He's moving away from that. He's moving away from Bethel. And remember, in Hebrew, that means the house of God. So he's moving away from that. And we see the concern in all of this when we get to verse 13. The men of Sodom were wicked They were great sinners against the Lord. The the story here is being told in such a way. It's being formed to help us to understand what happens when we move away from the presence of God, when we move away from the people of God. Lot was was more concerned with what the land looked like than the culture that he was going to immerse himself in. And so he moved east. And when people move east in Genesis, it isn't a good thing. There's nothing wrong with us moving east. But when you move east in Genesis, it's not good. And you'll, you know this. When, when I bring up the examples, you'll know what I'm talking about. When Adam and Eve sinned and they were banished from the garden, which direction did they go? They moved east. When Cain murdered his brother Abel and he was worried that people were going to kill him so God put a mark on him to protect him, what does Genesis tell us? That he moved further east. He was moving further away from the presence of the Lord. And it's really great that that's east because I think I would go that way in my right. I'm pointing the right direction. I feel kind of cool here. But when you move when you move east in Genesis, you're moving away from the presence of God. It's not a good thing. You get the idea, nothing good happens when we move away from the presence of God. When we step away from the presence of God, bad things happen. And the allure of the world is not just something that Lot is tempted by. We have the same temptations. We are drawn to the things that seem to be prosperous for ourselves and often we don't consider where that takes us. We don't consider how who we associate with will endanger our relationship with God. We often don't appreciate the importance of being around the covenant people of God and how that can impact our spiritual lives. This isn't just in the big decisions of our lives, like where we choose to live, or who we marry, or the types of friends we surround ourselves with. It gets down to the daily decisions that we make. Are we going to stay near the presence of God? Are we going to be seduced by the allure of the world? Will we be sure to regularly be in the presence of, of God? Will we be sure to be regularly in the presence of the covenant people of God? Will we be sure to hear the Word and trust that the Spirit will be at work in us because it is so easy to succumb to the world. And to be faithful, we must be in a position to hear the Word and have the support of our fellow believers. And we will see that this is the case when it comes to the story of Lot. His decision has consequences. We see that he succumbs to the seduction of the world, but as we move on to our next point, we find that the world oppresses Lot Lot was interested. Lot was interested in the things of the world. But the world had zero concern at all with the well-being of Lot. The world didn't care about Lot. He moved east, and the powers of that region decided to exert their power over the people there. While Lot was looking for a prosperity in that area, the, the kings in that region were doing the same thing. As I said, the world only looks out for itself. The power that these kings had cared nothing for the feelings of Lot. They felt nothing for the freedom of Lot. The kings didn't care whether his life would be good. They just cared about themselves. After they were done with him, who cares? They just wanted the power they felt was due to them in their positions. And we read in the passage about war happening as war does, right? This is what happens in in kingdoms. Different kingdoms join forces, and they overcame other kingdoms. Not only are the names of many of these kings and places hard to say, but the whole thing is hard to keep track of because you have all these different alliances and and battles going on. But as we think about this part of of the chapter, I want us to look at verses 11 and 12 of chapter 14. All the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah are taken. But not only that, The provisions that they had were taken. That's brutal. They not only took their stuff, but they took what they needed to survive. Prospering, having success here for Lot is out the door for sure. And instead, staying alive becomes his priority. As I said, the world did not care for Lot, it only looked out for itself. And while we hopefully will never experience being oppressed in the way that Lot was, the truth is that we are ultimately oppressed when we make decisions against God. When we fall into sin, no matter how great we think it is, the truth is sin oppresses us. Because our sin separates us from God. It keeps us from growing in holiness. It can cause us to move away from the gathering of the covenant people, further damaging our spiritual condition. But isn't it the problem that that we don't even realize that this is happening? We're so enamored with our sin that that we don't see the damage that it inflicts on us. We We get to a place where even if we want out of where we're at, we struggle to know how to do it. We find that sin has trapped us. We are oppressed. And that is why we need to be rescued from our sin and unbelief. And we see that the problem Lot is facing requires the same thing. It requires a miraculous rescue, and that is precisely what he receives. And So as we come to our third point today, we see that word, we see that word of deliverance. It comes to Abram. He is in a terrible situation. He sees that he is in need. Abram finds out that this is going on and so he devises a plan. Turns out that Abram had some trained men. Now, I'm guessing these aren't trained acrobats or trained chefs. I'm guessing these are some bad dudes. (laughs) Because if you think about it, they had to be trained for battle because in the ancient world, there was little in the way of law. And there was no law enforcement. So you, you had to protect your livestock, you had to protect your property, you had to protect your family through force. And it was force of your own. And so Abram had quite a bit of wealth, And so he was going to need some people to protect him and his family. And 318, it says here, to be precise. And notice also that they were born in his house. They were likely children of his servants, and he had provided for them, and he had fed them, and he had cared for them their entire lives. And So they are therefore not only trained, but they're probably very loyal to Abram. And so this is really a remarkable story because when you think about it, 318 trained men seems like a lot to you and I. But compared to the forces that they were up against, all these these kingdoms and these kings and these armies coming together, what do you think 318 trained men was compared to that? That's a small force. But what do we see happen? Abram leads them in, and he rescues Lot and his family, his servants, and his possessions by night. They took back all that had been taken from them. And what did they do? What did Abram do with them? He returned them to the land of the promise. The enemies of God have been vanquished by Abram, the one from whom the the child of the promise will come. Abram is the child of the promise. He is the one through whom all the nations of the world will be blessed He comes in and he delivers Lot from the situation that he is in. Hmm, who does that remind us of? The one who will come to crush the head of the serpent. As I said earlier, so many things happen in the life of Abram, but this story was chosen to be told to us for a reason It's pointing us to something so much greater. It's telling us an interesting story, a neat little war tale, but it's also pointing us to the greatest story. Despite our desire for something other than God, even in the midst of our sin that was oppressing us, God rescues his people in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Lot was not going to rescue himself. He was in a terrible situation at best at best, Lot could hope to flee and get out, but he would have to abandon everything. But even then, he was likely doomed. They would catch him, and they would kill him. But what happened? Abram came in, and even though the odds were impossible, he rescued his kinsmen and brought him back to the land of promise. So here's what we need to remember, that God in Christ, even though the odds seemed against him at the cross, he actually rescued his people. The odds seemed against him when he was killed. But through his death, resurrection, ascension, you and I, his people, his kinsmen, have been brought to the land of promise out of our sin. This story And every story that that shows the amazing rescue of God's people points us to the rescue that you and I have in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this story, which seems to be a little out of place and maybe insignificant, is actually a beautiful picture for us of the gospel. Our sinful desires, our sinful desires have us in a predicament. We choose sin and it turns into oppression but as Christians, we know that we have deliverance. And because of that, we have forgiveness for our sin and unbelief. And we are empowered by the Holy Spirit to walk in newness of life. And it's because of this good news that we're motivated to live in holiness. And, and that's why we desire to apply Scripture to our lives because we see what God has done for us in Christ and so we desire to live a holy life. So let's apply what Scripture has to say. Even a relatively obscure passage like this one has application for us. So I want us to take away two points this week that are rooted in the truth of the gospel. As I said, we desire to apply this story to our lives, not to score points with God, but instead as a response to what God in Christ has done for us. Because he has come and rescued us and brought us into his kingdom, we now desire to do these things to live a holy life, and to serve him in love. And so our first point of application this week is to avoid the seduction of the world. This starts with an honest assessment of our lives, right? Where have we fallen prey to viewing the world in a way that is not in line with the word of God? What do we do that moves us away from the presence of God? Another good question to ask ourselves is, how do we justify How do we justify in our minds those things that move us away from God? How do we convince ourselves that it's okay? Well, the draw of the world is strong. And if we don't identify the way that this affects us, we can find ourselves in a situation similar to lots. Everything might seem fine for a while, but the oppression of sin shows up in our lives. It will will do us harm, and so we want to stay near the presence of God and in fellowship with him and with his people. And so that brings us to our second application for this week. And it's a challenge. Find something this week that helps you to stay near to the presence of God, that keeps you close to him. Something that fights the allure and the seduction of the world that we are going to come in contact with as soon as we walk outside these doors. You know, that might be time in the Word, that might be family worship, that might be adding more times of prayer or meditation on Scripture into your day. We know what happens. We know what happens when we move away from the presence of the Lord. We saw it with Lot, and we know what it looks like in our lives, too. And so it's important. It's important that we remember why we're here. Why we're here today. We come here to center ourselves in the kingdom of God and in his word as we worship, as we confess, as we hear the gospel. And then we go out into the world with its temptations. But each week we're drawn back here by God's word and by the spirit to be in the presence of God and in the presence of his covenant people, to be strengthened in the news that we have been delivered. And no matter how overwhelming the odds, we have a savior who came and rescued us and brought us into his kingdom. And so may this good news, that God delivers his people from their oppression, strengthen you, and may the proclamation of it be used by the Holy Spirit this week to sanctify you and make you holy. Amen.